You're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Do you want to speak with confidence and authority, have more influence, and get bigger and better results? Whether you're a top executive, an entrepreneur, or climbing the career ladder, this is the show for you. A leader who wants to inspire others and leave a lasting legacy. Now here's your host, world-renowned TEDx speaker, author, and executive communication coach, Dr. Laura Sokola. Welcome to the podcast, Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, your host, founder of Vocal Impact Productions, and author of Speaking to Influence, Mastering Your Leadership Voice. My guest today is Trish Wellenbach, president and CEO of the Please Touch Museum, a top 10 children's museum in the United States, and chairman of the board of Thomas Jefferson University. She's also the first woman to hold that seat. Trish, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you, Laura. Now, Please Touch Museum, by definition, that almost sounds like a contradiction in terms. So can you give us a 30-second elevator pitch? What is the Please Touch Museum? Well, it may be a contradiction in terms during a pandemic, although we (laughs) navigated that fairly well. We are one of several hundred children's museums around the country, founded in 1976 in Philadelphia. And our mission is to assure that all children discover the power of learning through play, and what play can do to help them become lifelong learners. We envision a world where all children, all children are creative, compassionate, confident, and curious, because those are the fundamental infrastructures that everyone needs if they're going to be successful in the classroom, on the playground, in the workroom, in life. That's fabulous. And especially Myself having a son who just began kindergarten, this is exactly what I certainly want for him and from all the educational opportunities. And he certainly is a big fan of the Please Touch Museum. We've been there a number of times. So tell me, Josh, what's the best part of your job? What's your favorite part and why? Sometimes I say the favorite part is as a business owner, I'm not sad when children are crying when they leave the building because it (laughs) means they've had such a fabulous time and they want to stay. But really, I think the best part of my job is being out on the museum floor and seeing children engaging in play, sometimes by themselves, sometimes with a grown-up, sometimes with other children. And as they explore, discover, test, and try new things, and sometimes fail. And then they keep doing it again and again. And then all of a sudden you see this face of when they've discovered something new, that they can make a connection and learn something about what's inside of them, that they can actually move the water in the river adventure, that they understand how to create something amazing in imagination playground, that they go to our creative arts studio and they play with a new medium, maybe clay or work with something for the first time. It's just amazing. Their brains move so fast. And it's a reminder that they really are probably the smartest people on the planet. We forget to give them credit for that. Yes, yes. And you said something that really caught my ear, the notion of watching them try, fail, and try again, and just keep trying until they get it or until they're satisfied one way or another. We seem to lose that somewhere. I think, of course, a lot in the school systems, traditionally, that propensity has been beaten out of us. I mean, metaphorically speaking, I certainly hope. But nevertheless, the fear of failure, especially the fear of public failure, is something that has become such a motivating force for most of us as adults. What do you think organizations, companies, employers can do to help foster that sense of that willingness to experiment and to try in a way that's also safe? Because, of course, no one wants to lose their job because they tried something and failed and it didn't work and there was fair repercussions. Where's that, where's that safe space? 
Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Companies that have big R&D, they're trying and failing all the time. Sure. They fail more than they succeed and they Mm -hmm. keep working at it. I I think it's less about safe space and more about having an environment that allows for experimentation. So as opposed to saying, let's make it safe for people to fail, let's create a place where it's really wonderful to experiment, explore, test. And I think when you change the language, then people just don't think about the fear of failure. And I think when you talk about young children, we did a study here two summers ago with the Changing Brain Lab at Penn, Angela Duckworth's lab, the woman who is the brilliant woman who speaks about grit. Yes. And this study was on persistence and how children develop persistence. And just like the adults have to help children teach themselves to sleep and teach how to calm themselves. Mm -hmm. Adults have a big role in helping children develop persistence. And so, yes, we're all busy and we want to get out the door. So it's a lot easier if you say, look, let me put your shoes on and I'll tie them for you. It takes some time to let a child actually try it and develop their own persistence. And we did an amazing study here that was peer-reviewed and published around how you actually can cultivate the development of persistence in children from the earliest ages. We studied kids from the ages of three to seven. Hmm. And it was really fascinating. They were thrilled with the outcomes in the data. And, and really, in some respects, it's retraining the adults in the room yes. for how you can get a child to actually have confidence in themselves and persist until they master a task. Is there a takeaway from those findings as far as, I love that idea of retraining or reconditioning the adults in the room more so than the children, something that that we can take away and apply in the workforce, in the professional space to say, how do we recondition the bosses or recondition the, the leaders in the organization to help foster that sense of experimentation? I often will challenge leaders who are kind of at the top of their game to say, how are you getting out of the way so that the folks that are coming up can actually lean in and try some things. And just because you did it one way doesn't mean that's the only way. Now, that's your own self-reflection and you've got to get comfortable with it. But I think that's the easiest way or possibly the most productive way to bring out leadership in individuals. Move out of the way and let them lead. And I did this myself during the pandemic. We were closed for a long period of time and brought in a really remarkable design thinker futurist to work with some members of our leadership team around what we're calling Project Next, Mm. taking advantage of the pandemic as a pause moment for our business as we were closed for a year and say, how do we have to redefine our business model, how we're doing the work we're doing, the audiences, what stays, what goes, what are we willing to take risk around? And I decided that I wouldn't participate in that. Mm. And I said to the team, I'd be interested if one or two of you would like to take a lead on this. And I will step to the side and let you work with the team and the outside facilitator and the consultant. And it was, it was really hard for me. I'm not used to doing that. So it took a lot of discipline. But I think it was a real affirmation for my team yeah. that leadership happens in small, bright moments. And those two leaders, one who had been here, both had been here very short periods of time. And one had come to join us during the pandemic. I mean, they did a remarkable job. And I'm quite proud of that work. And I said to the group that was working on it, I said, do you know the level of trust that I had to have in all of you? Because I'm saying, okay, you come back and you tell me what you think. You challenge me to think new ways about how uh, I should be guiding and shaping the business going forward. So 
it was a great opportunity to practice what I've been preaching to some of my friends. Are you getting out of the way and letting your teams actually do the work so they can find their path forward? I can just imagine. And then was there one big takeaway for you from that experiment on your part, seeing they came back to you with their ideas and recommendations? And it doesn't have to be necessarily regarding what decision to make so much as a broader learning. I think probably the fact that we were in a very Zoom world at the time and I wasn't checking in a lot with people. And I think if I had seen them in the building, you know, walking around, I would be like, so how's that going? Mm. And it was freeing a little bit for me and, and also a little scary. I'm, I'm not going to pretend that it wasn't, you know, I'm sure I, I think uh, it was pretty remarkable. And now it's been amazing to see some opportunities that have come to us and to see in the room when someone will go, oh, that's kind of what we talked about in our Project Net conversation. Remember, we thought that this might be a direction we could take the business in and look what's happening. So they feel this bigger sense of ownership around it, I think. Yes, yes. And so then what's something that's exciting or important that's happening in the industry now or in the organization? So in the Children's Museum world, we've spent a lot of time in the last year thinking about how the deep isolation, lack of engagement with family, community, school has impacted children. And we're focused very much here at our museum on how children are getting ready to go to school and to your son who's a kindergartner, really making sure that children are ready to learn in kindergarten. It's a project we had actually started over two years ago with a national research project. And then we were going into a year of program development. That year of program development happened during our pandemic closure. And as we were working through that, this work has taken on a very high level of relevance. Mm. And it's not about getting children academically ready to learn. How are we working with the families to prepare them and the children to be socially and emotionally ready to learn. So we took a whole child approach and we're working with the entire family unit, the adults and the children. And really in many respects, the grownups are learning a lot too and how to get their children ready to be in a classroom, to interact with others. Those social skills that if you haven't mastered them, create levels of fear and anxiety that actually prohibit good learning. Mm. So how, with all of that going on in, in the shift since the pandemic and from the before or the during and now, heaven willing, into the after per se, in all of that that you're trying to help people understand, what do you find that you have to do differently with regard to how you communicate those all of those messages? There's so many different stakeholder groups. There's so many different who needs to know what and why. How do you adjust your, your communication for those purposes? I think it's around making sure that you understand the interest of the audience you're speaking to. And how does that apply for yours? Right. And how, so how does that apply for mine? So we're looking for some significant funding for this program. And in our homework around the individuals we're talking to, you know, a quote came across my screen that was, you have to learn before you earn. Mm. And that is resonating with a lot of people right now. When I'm talking to people from the community, uh, we do a tremendous amount of work with the Parkside neighborhood, which is literally across the street from us, a very underserved, marginalized community. This is about meeting them where they are. And really, how does our work become a value to their neighborhood, their families, and their children? So understanding when I speak to them about this program, what's the difference it's going to make for them? And how will it elevate not just one family, but maybe a whole neighborhood and a community? So I think it's really understanding the person's lens that they see this work through. And we're looking to engage a lot of civic and educators around the city. And so really understanding what how this helps them. 
how does what we're going to do help the people that are most important to you, your children, your community, the city at large? It's just part of what we have to do right now because there is a lot of noise out there. Yes. And we're very respectful of the fact that there are a lot of basic human needs that still need to be met. We're kind of sort of post-pandemic, not really. Right, exactly. And so really wanting to understand when it's our time and the appropriate time to talk about this critical need, because this is going to be a critical need. Getting children ready and able to learn in the classroom again is not a one-year, it's not a one-year project. It's two or three years. And it may change the trajectory of learning for children in our city from marginalized communities for years to come if we do this right. Yes, that's the key. And the the notion of answering the question of what's in it for us, what's in it for them, I think that's the universal core driver yeah. for so much messaging is no matter who your constituencies are, no matter what the audience is for the moment, whether it's investors or community members or employees, anybody at that point, your clients, everybody tunes into that same radio station, right? WIFM, what's in it for me? Yeah. And if you can start from there, meet them on their frequency on that radio dial, then everything goes so much more smoothly. It's just often hard to tune in and identify exactly what that frequency is. Yeah, for sure. Now, with all this, what do you find that you're really good at as far as your communication, your own personal communications toolbox is concerned? And what do you wish you were better at? I'm really good at connecting the constellation of incoming messages and reframing it for people in a meeting or in a room to understand. So I move fast. There's something in my computer chip in my brain that gets me there faster than other people. And I can then translate it out. And, you know, as people are finishing a conversation, I can say, so let me see if I understand what we're talking about here and where we want to go. My children, when they were growing up, they used to be like, mom, how do you do that? (laughs) And then when my son went to Wharton, he called me one day and he said, I finally figured out how you go from A to B to Q, back to M and then to Z and then tie it all up. He said, I, I couldn't figure that out until some class he had at Wharton, which helped him figure that out. So thank you, Wharton, for helping him with that. <laughs> and, and I think that's a value for me because I've been told by other business leaders and in other important stakeholder rooms that I've been in that I can move a room very quickly. I can get people to see where they want to be of one of my board members just called me and several weeks ago, we finished a big project. And he said to me, Trish, I didn't realize all along where you were taking us. You've been layering all these things in and information and orientation to things and education sessions. And he said, it all makes perfect sense now. He said, you knew where you wanted us to get to. We just didn't actually all understand it. I don't know that I'd learned it in a classroom. I, I actually think I learned it as a labor and delivery nurse when I was in my 20s helping people figure out how they could get through something that was very painful and have a really amazing outcome on the other side. Yes. I I literally think that's where I figured it out. You know, work with me. We're going to get there. I got your back on this. You know, we're going to, wait till you see what's going to happen and how beautiful it's going to be. So I think that that's something that I do really well. And I've come to appreciate that skill in me, but you know, as they say, everyone's best attribute can become their Achilles heel. And I have to modulate and make sure I don't get too ahead of everybody else. I've gotten better at it. I wasn't always very good at it, but I've gotten much better at it and put a little pause buttons in every once in a while to say, okay, well, let's, let's take a moment and see, you know, how we're doing here and things like that. So 
still working on that skill, I think. Yeah, the, it's it's hard to realize what sometimes when we get stuck in what I like to call the expert's curse, that we forget what's not obvious to everybody else because right. we have all the information, all the background pieces, and we understand all the pieces make sense. They all fit together in a way that's clear. And you forget, or if it's not even a matter of forget perhaps, but that we don't know which pieces of the puzzle other people may be missing, That's that they're not connecting quite the same way. So to be able to translate, to distill that information so quickly. I'm curious, you know, your, your son figured it out in that class in Wharton, whatever the class happened to be. Is it something that you can explain in just you know a couple of sentences? Is there, what's the nature of the process that you follow that helps you get to that core? So what I'm hearing is X. And in order to get from X to Y, it seems like we need to do Z. Is there a map you can share with us, a GPS? I wish there was, because if I could figure it out, I could bottle it and sell it and probably be a very wealthy woman. <laughs> I don't know what it is in my brain. It just moved that way. And sometimes I, I wish it didn't. I wish it slowed down. But yeah, it's just something in my head that I can think about. I pick up keywords, I think, and then connect them. Mm. And I had a colleague once say to me, I love watching you in a meeting. I can see how your brain is moving the things around and trying to figure out like, Oh, well, if we position it this way and what happens if it goes here, it may come again back to when I was triaging in a very busy labor and delivery suite. You know, you do 25 deliveries in in eight hours and you kind of have to know how to move fast. And believe me, I had a few of those shifts and like who goes where and when you move and what comes first and how to then shift it again. And I was learning that when I was 21, 22. I didn't even have a fully developed frontal lobe yet. I think in some respects, that's where nurses have a very different set of uh, operating skills mm. than other people do. We're, we're in this interesting environment at a pretty young age, facing all sorts of life's challenges and joys and, and sadness. And I think it just, it just gets imprinted in you. Yes. Yes. I would think so. And now tell me so many different audiences that you have to speak to from the neighborhoods, the community members, to the board, to your role, of course, shifting completely from working with the museum to working at the university and with that board. How have you learned to shift your speech style? I mean, aside from the whole who's identify who's the audience and what's in it for me, that doesn't get to the depth, I'm sure, of how you have to change hats sometimes. How do you change hats to talk to all those, to connect with all of those different groups effectively and still be yourself at the same time? Is it ever hard to adapt? Yeah, I would be remiss if I said no. Okay. I, it's not hard to adapt because it's always hard to adapt because you're changing. But I, I think what isn't hard is understanding who you are authentically. And I'm pretty much an open book. People can read me pretty easily. I'm not a lot of surprises. I will say in the adapting and the communication, as the chair of the board of soon to be the largest employer in the city of Philadelphia with an $8 billion year balance sheet, wow. I do a lot of listening. I am never the smartest person in the room and I'm never the only person in the room, which is how I've been leading for my entire life. I really do believe that's a credo that I carry with me every day. So as chair of the Thomas Jefferson University board, I do a lot of listening. I have really remarkably smart people at that board table and the management table whose opinion I take very much to heart. I have the same experience when I'm the CEO reporting to my board. I have a very smart board and they bring an array of skills and experiences professionally and personally, and I value their counsel deeply. I just think about it in a different way. But fundamentally, the question comes down is, how does the conversation I'm having now, how does what I'm listening to and engaging in make me either a better CEO or a better board chair? Right. And I get that when I'm talking to the community members. 
And, you know, my style may be a little different. It may be a little more relaxed when I'm talking to a community member, but it's no less sincere and it's no less important. Sure. I think the only time my communication style really changes is when I'm talking to a four-year-old. And this is what I do. I literally kneel down on the floor (laughs) to be eye level with them because you always want to be eye level with people that you're engaging with. Sure. And I do a lot of listening and I try to reflect back what they're saying to me. And that's some of my best and most enjoyable communication experiences. No doubt. I'm sure the answers you get are are pretty entertaining for you as well. Yes, I had a little girl shortly after we reopened. Our food market experience is the most beloved exhibit in our museum. And we're undergoing a massive 3,000 square foot renovation project. So it's closed. Mm. And on the third or fourth day after we had reopened, this young girl came right up to me with her mother, her grandmother, her mom had a little one, maybe like a 10 month old. And she was about four and she hit my leg. Now, no one actually knows who I am. I just look like I might have some influence or be important because I don't wear (laughs) tags or anything purposely. Sure. And she kind of hit my leg and I said, hi. And I got down on the floor and she said, where is my grocery store? And I said, uh, well, it's closed for the moment. Why? And I said, well, we are fixing it to make it a newer, bigger, better grocery store. And it's going to be amazing. Good. When? Tomorrow? <laughs> and I said, oh, no, not tomorrow, sweetie. And she said, the next day? And I said, no, not the next day. And I looked at the mother and this was in April. And she looked at me and I said, the fall. And she said, I'll handle it from here. So that, (laughs) yeah, I guess that's changing my style to talk to a a constituent, a stakeholder. A four-year-old is possibly my biggest stakeholder. (laughs) Yes. And potentially your biggest uh, fan and critic alike. And what do you mean it's not going to be? I've said three whole different days and you haven't said yes yet. Correct. Even though they're only three days apart. Yes. Not a lot of, it's very hard to negotiate with a four-year-old. It is. Definitely learned that one the hard way. But now I'm curious We mentioned back at the very beginning that in the almost 200-year history of the university, you are the first woman to hold the chair position. Was that an issue for you when you first took over? No, I mean, you you don't get to be the chair of Thomas Jefferson University without knowing it's coming. So we we knew that it was coming. Sure. And I, I was, first of all, honored that the board and management had this level of confidence in me and saw me as not just their next chair, but as the first woman chair. It's funny because a lot of people say to me like, well, how are you going to do both things? And I say to them, if I was a guy, would you ask me that? Mm. Like, you know, I've had very high profile roles on the board over several years now to actually allow for me to have the pathway to the chair seat. So I'm very good at time management and I'm very proud of the fact that each of my roles makes me smarter and more efficient in the other role. My board is very proud of the fact that, you know, their CEO is representing women in one of the highest positions in the city, although not paid. And I think possibly the Thomas Jefferson University board gets a little tickled when sometimes I'm in a meeting with them and there's a curious George, you know, stuffed animal over my shoulder in a Zoom call. And they're thinking, oh, that's the lady who does the fun stuff. Your day job's a little bit different from most people's yeah, per se. Yeah, that's for sure. For sure. That's fun. Um, but, you know, I think I like to think that I'm a servant leader. And when I'm called to do a job that I really think about the opportunity to do it to my best. And my goal always is to leave an organization, no matter what my role is, stronger after I finish the work there. And that's my goal for Thomas Jefferson University. And it's my goal for the Police Touch Museum. Love it. 
So this brings us to our listener 24-hour influence challenge. So Trish, this is your opportunity to speak directly to our audience and challenge them to take one step that they can complete within 24 hours to have more influence. How would you like to challenge our listeners today? Okay, so I went at this from the, if I was going to run a marathon or do a diet, what would I do? I'd get a plan, okay? And you have to get started. And when you do tough things like that, you have to get some soft early rewards, like some big wins early on. So you keep going. Right. And I think when you're trying to figure out how to have more influence, you're not even actually sure where the rewards are coming from or if it's happening. And you kind of put that to the end of the list you know, as you're making your to-do list for the week or for the day. So my challenge would be in the next 24 hours, determine two things that you could do in 30 days that would position you more strongly to be an influencer. And then find your champion. Find one person that's going to check in with you to see how you're doing on that every day, every other day. And at the end of the 30 days, my guess is you'll have done it and you'll feel good about it and you'll go, oh, I can actually do this. So let's think about the next goal. Okay. So if I understand then, we've got sort of part one and part two, but the first is just make your plan define what your influence goal is. What do you even want? And that's kind of funny because most of us think, well, I just want to have more influence in different ways, but we don't actually articulate it to ourselves. What would that success look like? So to write down the two things that they could do to have more influence and then find a champion was the second part of that. I like that. Most of us don't think about having that advocate work in our corner. What would a champion look like? It could be a child. It could be a friend. It could be a business partner. It could be someone that you, you know, watch on a listen to on a blog or watch on a video who would inspire you. It doesn't actually have to be someone in your orbit. And I thought about this because I ran a marathon for the first time when I was on the wrong side of age 40. Um, and I did it. Uh, there is no such thing as the wrong side of age 40. Yeah. In the marathon there is. But anyway, I did it with my son, my youngest son, who um, wanted to raise money for cancer services because mm. we had lost some family members to cancer. And he was 12 at the time. I'm sorry. And he said, mom, I think I should run a marathon and raise a lot of money. I'm like, you're 12. You can't run the marathon. And I said, well, I'll tell you what. I'll run the marathon. You raise the money. And I said, but here's the deal. You have to be my champion. You have to help me. Mm. Now, this was back in the day because 40 was a little bit of a while ago for me. But he made me CDs to listen to when I was running. He would pick out movies because I trained in the winter that I could watch on the TV when I was running on the treadmill and things like that. Like He was my champion to help me get there. He raised $10,000 and I ran my first marathon. And that was great. He became my champion. I took on something hard that I could never have imagined I would have wanted to do. And, you know, he was 12 at the time. So he got me there. That's awesome. Okay. So a champion doesn't have to necessarily be like a mentor, an advocate at work who's going to go to bat for you per se. It just could mean someone who's going to be in your corner, someone who's going to help you out, could be an accountability partner, anything along those lines, but find someone who's going to provide you some value, motivation, inspiration, assistance to help you get there. Yeah. I think the inspiration word is the right one. Who's going to inspire me and who am I going to feel really badly about if I don't get this done? Oh, so (laughs) important. Yes. Who don't I want to let down? That's the whole point of telling someone else because then there's that external, but you just don't want to let them. Oh, I love it. So you just hit right in the soft spot in the heart on that one. Who don't you want to let down? All right. Love it. Now we've talked a lot about the successes you've had. Have you had a mistake along the way, communications related? Oh my God, a million of them. (laughs) Can you share a story? Yeah, I will share a story. Many years ago when I was first working in cancer support services and I was raising money at the time for an organization I was running, I was very new into this world, 
just back into my first job after taking 10 years off when my children were young. And through a fortuitous event, I'm going to leave names out. Of course. I got to meet with the president of one of the largest, one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world who had a big presence in oncology. And I had a half hour with this individual. Now it's a half hour. This individual was, you know, worth a lot. My budget wasn't very large at the time. And uh, I was advised by the person who had made the introduction to ask for something big. And, you know, because he'll appreciate that. You got to think big, et cetera. Now, a cardinal rule of fundraising is never go alone. Take someone with you. It was the summertime on a Friday in August, and I couldn't find a board member anywhere else to go with me. And I got the 30 minutes and I thought, well, I could give it up or I could take it and go. And I thought I was so well prepared, so well. And they happened to make a breast cancer drug. And so does one of their biggest competitors. And the two drugs have a name that are very similar. And I got to this individual's office and got introduced and made the, you know, did all the stuff that I had been coached on, comment on someone's office. It makes, you know, you feel like you're connecting to them personally and you're starting to, you know, aggregate information about the individual. And we sat down and I had my 30 minutes and I thought it went really well. I asked for a very large grant and he thanked me for my time, never said a word. And I got in the car to drive back to Philadelphia. And when I put the key in the ignition, I realized I had used the wrong name, the wrong drug, his competitor's drug. That's, I bet the bottom of your stomach just bottomed out at that point. I don't think I needed gasoline in the car. I think my tears got me back to Philadelphia (laughs) (laughs) because I was just a mess. Well, I am proud to say that many years later, he and I became dear friends. He was a tremendous mentor to me and an advisor. And when he was transitioning out of his role to go and take a big job out on the West Coast, we had breakfast and I said, I just have a question to ask you. You know, I just was horrendous in that meeting with you. I actually saved the documentation for that meeting and I still have it to this day. And I periodically take it out to make me a little bit humble when I need to be <laughs> humble. And uh, I said, I, I couldn't believe that you gave the grant to the organization that you did. And, and he looked at me and said, I didn't give it to the organization. I gave it to you. He said, I saw something in you that I thought was truly remarkable and a level of appreciation for where you wanted to go and with your organization, even though you were pretty new with it. And he said, I've worked with you now for six years and you have not failed me one step of the way. Mm -hmm. He said, you have exceeded all of my expectations. He said, even though you used the wrong drug name in the room, I knew you knew where you were going and you'd get there. So So they did actually give you the money, even though- Not as much as I had asked for, but that's okay. Yep. Um, But over the years, they funded a tremendous amount of work that we did. And I was quite proud of that work. But it was fascinating when he said, I I didn't really give it to you, even though you did say the wrong drug. Interesting. (laughs) So when you had gone back, I'm curious, after that revelation, did it occur to you to go back in and try to fix it or to follow up afterwards? Or did you just, how long before he even got back and said, okay, here's the amount of money that we are going to give you after all? It took about two weeks to get the grant. And when they notified me, they were going to give us a grant. And I just thought, don't go there, girl. Like, just leave it alone. It's going to be what it's going to be. It's going to be a lesson learned. You're probably not going to get the grant. And, you know, you just got to do better next time. So, you know, the key is prepare, 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 and then prepare again, because you just never know. And fortunately, you dodged the bullet on that one. They didn't hurt. You still got some money. That's terrific. Uh, Now, I want to go right to the very end here. Can you give an example of something with regard to succession planning and building people up? You are now at the chair. I'm sure there's a lot of people coming up 
for future opportunities behind you in succession planning in general. Is there anything that has disqualified or otherwise potentially delayed an internal candidate who's technically qualified from taking a leadership role, but maybe missing something else? What would they have needed to do to close that gap and show you that they were really ready? So I think when you get to very high levels in organizations, you know, directors, senior managers, whatever the titles are, your resume speaks for itself. You know, I am less worried about the body of work and I'm more focused on the individual. I'm really focused on how they engage and work with others. Discretion and privacy becomes even more important as you get higher up in organizations and respecting boundaries. And I think also a level of initiative around problem solving or being willing to actually respectfully, but responsibly say no to something Mm. when you know it's really not the right direction to go. Those are the types of things that I really look for in people who want to actually get to the pinnacle of whatever part of their business they are in, you know, with respect to their leadership role. And find that sometimes there are people who have everything else, but not quite that. Yeah, there are brilliant, highly accomplished technicians, operators, et cetera. They don't necessarily always have the highest EQ. Mm. And I think that that's becoming even more and more important in leaders. And I think, you know, look, sometimes it's, sometimes it's a good thing to say, no, I don't think we should go in this direction and this is why. Sure. So you're thinking about the whole and not the me. So maybe going in that direction would be beneficial to you as the individual and advance your career. But what's the impact on the whole? Right. Either that division the business as a whole, a team, does the team have the bandwidth to take it on? It may be important to you and it may be a good idea, but a good idea whose time hasn't come for the organization. I mean, those are the types of things that you really want leaders to be thinking about. You know, good strategy tells you when not to do something, Mm. you know, and particularly the more prominent and successful a business is, there's going to be incoming all the time. So do you know how to set those boundaries as to what's appropriate and ready for now or ready for later? I mean, I turned away a big opportunity once because it didn't tie to the strategy and there was a lot of money tied to it. And I just said, it would be very prestigious and financially beneficial if we took this on now, but we have real clarity around where we're going and where we want to get to. 18, 24 months from now, let's have this conversation. But right now, We can't do it. We don't have the capacity. We don't have the team. It's not fair to all the work we've done so far. Those are the types of critical thinking skills that leaders really need to have. Yes. Is it possible to learn those at that stage? Or if you're already up there and you don't have them, it's unlikely to develop. Is there anything people can do to help themselves? I think there are things that you can do, but obviously it gets harder as you get further along in your career. And if you're just not wired to think that way, but I think you have to not just assume because the resume has all these bright, shiny words on it, that that, you know, entitles you to a seat at the table. Yes. There's lots of other pieces and parts. We've talked a lot about children today, as well as adults. Let's talk about someone in the middle, the teenagers. <laughs> okay. Time for some advice to that future generation of leadership. Finally, Trish, if you were asked to give the commencement address at a high school graduation ceremony, what advice would you give the graduates? Whether or not they go to college, regardless of major or career goals, what's the one thing they have to do to be successful? You have to get out of your comfort zone to find your inner potential. 
I have never been qualified on paper for any job I've ever done to 100% of what that job required. But it was in moving out of my comfort zone and really discovered skills, um, resiliency, capacity, adaptability that I hadn't known I had inside of me. And every job, every opportunity should have a bit of a leap of faith in it or it won't be exciting. You won't want to actually get up and lean in and do it. I mean, a little bit of, oh my goodness, am I going to be able to do this can inspire greatness in people. And I just wish more people would feel comfortable doing that. I think that's in in particular a challenge for women of potentially any age, the notion that if they look at a job and they say, well, I only have eight or nine out of the 10 things they require, I'm lacking one or two of them, so I won't apply. Whereas at least the stereotype is that the guys are more likely to look at it and say, well, I've got half of them. I'll figure out the other half and apply anyway. So um, ladies and gentlemen, anybody out there who questions their own readiness or their whether or not they can do it simply because they're not comfortable in that space. There's a lot to develop. I'm right there with you, Trish. I have definitely more often than not jumped into places where I thought, I don't know if I'm technically qualified, but I want it. I can do it. And I'll figure the rest out as I go along. Because otherwise, if I'm totally qualified for something when I first start it, I'm going to be bored really fast because it doesn't seem like there's a lot to learn from there. So I guess it's the definition of total qualification, perhaps. That's where the flexibility lies. I think that's true. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, this has been such a fun conversation looking at both the professional world and the children's world all at the same time. Thank you so much for coming and joining us today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. How can people learn more about you and the Please Touch Museum or the university for that matter? So for Please Touch Museum, it's pleasetouchmuseum.org. And for Thomas Jefferson University, it's thomasjeffersonuniversity.edu. You can find me on our website, shoot me an email. I'm pretty transparent and I love to talk to people. I think it's important to give back and to listen and learn. And if I can help someone find a new direction or chart a new journey, that's a good thing. Terrific. Once again, thank you so much for joining us today, Trish. My pleasure. And everybody else, thank you as always for listening and tuning in. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode and don't forget to give us a five-star rating on iTunes so we can help even more people increase their confidence, presence, and influence. And finally, if you want to download my free guide to equipment recommendations for virtual influence, including my picks for microphones, lights, and more, go to speakingtoinfluence.com. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, and you're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Laura Sokola, and I want to sincerely thank you for listening to the Speaking to Influence podcast. If you love listening to these episodes as much as I love bringing them to you, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please go to iTunes right now to rate and review our podcast in order to help us expand our reach so even more people can master the three C's to command the room, connect with the audience, and close the deal. Thanks for listening to Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite, the show for readers who want to speak with impact. The hosts, producers, owners, and media distributors of the show make no guarantees that the strategies and information discussed will result in profit or other success and may result in losses. The opinions and statements of the hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the owners, staff, managers, broadcasters, or sponsors of the show. No medical or psychological therapy or personal or professional wellness or relationship advice is offered in the show. You are advised to seek counsel on matters related to your health, family, relationships, job, or other business and legal matters from licensed advisors in those areas prior to making any changes in business or lifestyle. No information provided may be suitable in your situation. As always, take responsibility for the decisions and actions you take, including the reactions they may make in your work, family, health, and life.